Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. Welcome back, folks. Join us on the show today. We have Michael Keplinger, Director of Strategy at Smash Brand. Even if you're not super familiar with Michael's agency, you've certainly seen their branding and packaging work on shelves, both at grocery stores and likely in your own home. Smash Brand uses a research-forward process that stress tests brand strategy and packaging design, which helps them better understand what sways consumers in given purchase decisions. They work with brands like Kool-Aid, Yucatan Guac, 7-Eleven Private Label, Duracell, and even PayPal. While their brand work reaches beyond the food and beverage space, make no mistake, these people are absolutely food marketing experts. In today's episode, you'll learn how Smash Brand uncovers the hidden insights that either validate or nullify ideas around what influences purchase decisions in a given category. If you're in the strategy or consumer research side of marketing, I think you will find this conversation to be especially useful. Without further ado, Smash Brand's Director of Strategy, Michael Keplinger. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. Good to be here. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what your path was that led you to Smash Brand? Yes, I am a partner at Smash Brand. We are exclusively focused on CPG, Packaging Design Agency. We run all the way from the strategy to packaging designs that we, in a unique way, I guess, in the packaging design industry, all the way from taking that into direct consumer testing to essentially prove that it's going to work in the marketplace. And on the background side, it's an interesting path that landed here, I should say. My business partner, Kevin at Smash Brand, another partner, He and I actually have a long history of working together, 25 years. We started early career at Raytheon, a very technical role, and mine being a lot more technical. And as we left there and started our first consumer brand uh, almost 20 years ago, a brand that is actually still sold in the marketplace today, I traditionally, with my engineering background, really led the finance and operations of that business. He was more on the sales and marketing side, but always a desire of mine to go back to full-time to get my MBA. And I was surprised when I went back to the University of California, San Diego, how much I was drawn towards the marketing side of things. It was unexpected, but particularly consumer behavior, consumer research methodologies, and just really taking that and really gravitating towards it and starting to apply it to our own consumer brand, our health food product brand that we had and applying that. And going back then into a major rebrand And now working with Kevin more side-by-side on marketing, we traditionally had very separate roles in the business. He always had that very creative side of things. And I had the more of kind of data-oriented side of thinking about it. But both of us are roots of entrepreneurs and taking ideas. And I think that the marriage of those two concepts together is really where the inception of Smash Brand came from. It's the piece of owning our own business, that entrepreneurism, working from one project to the next that really kind of keeps us passionate because it's always that creation phase of what we do. So that's how we got here and probably why our story and our agency is fairly unique in the services marketplace for this types of work. It definitely is. So how did your early career in computer engineering influence or your time at Raytheon influence what you guys do today? Well, I would say many years ago, we used to do a lot of web work. And where there's web, you need some technicality and functionality. And of course, that breathes itself into understanding the user perspective and that consumer influence, but pretty far removed from it. But I always go back that engineering as a discipline and what you learn in school is less about memorizing things. And it's more about critical thinking and problem solving. And that's something that can be applied to many things. I think that even the CMO role in a lot of organizations has shifted dramatically. And maybe there's a time and a place for 
renaming that role based on how it's really focused. There's several agents or sorry, companies that might be more data driven if they do e-commerce sales and things like this. And so certainly I think that that framework of thinking like an engineer has been applied to our process of the strategy side of it is that big picture thinking, certainly that engineers are known for, I guess, and really as applying it as a technique into that testing side of things is a little more data driven in our process. So speaking of process, and as the director of strategy, I'm sure you pride yourself on this answer, but what is it about Smash Brands strategy process that makes it unique to other packaging and branding firms? We have this notion, because we're so narrowly focused on CPG and recognizing that I think, as I talk through this, I think most listeners here, most people can really resonate and see the tangible difference in the marketplace. As consumers today, we are immune to advertising. Our brain shuts it off. And the further down the product chain that you go, meaning the less thought that it takes to make an impulse decision on a product, which happens frequently in grocery stores and drugstores and most big top retail stores, the further you go down there, that the traditional sense of marketing, even the role of the brand, sometimes gets a bit below that packaging. What that packaging does has to carry all of the weight. And so when we think about strategy for consumer products, and of course, we're going to have a conversation with our clients, how they intend to sell. And you can sell online, you have more space to create the story and communication and grow your brand and some of those pillars. But in the case where even if aspirations are going to that retail shelf, it really comes down to what is going on inside that consumer's mind as they walk down that shelf. We all have our own history and our own nuanced things of perceptions of the world. And that comes there also. And then the competition, the space, everything that's in there, whether it's from the messaging, the color and the placement of everything in there, all comes together to basically instantaneously make purchase decisions. And I think that that is where we center. It's not the same for every project and every product, but certainly for the types of products and your food marketing channel here, and we're talking a lot about grocery stores, I think the vast majority of products in the grocery store activation happens on the retail shelf. And so that's where we drive a lot of our strategy coming from. So something that you said piqued my interest was that in some cases, the packaging carries the brand as opposed to brand carrying the packaging. That's right. And I would say that this particularly applies to the challenger brands, the brands that no one's heard of before. That when there's, what's the number today? 47,000 products on average in a grocery store compared to 20 years ago. So these big brands that still lead with their brand, the Procter & Gamble's and Johnson & Johnson's of the world and all their suite of branded products that they own, they very much are brand heavy, but their competition is coming from seemingly left field because whatever their story is, whether they were in farmer's markets, or they've just got tremendous success by interaction on Amazon or a Kickstarter. Anyways, the 100 other products that failed behind them are not relevant. What's relevant is you've got this product that has some traction. Probably the reason why the big retail stores are interested in bringing them on board and they come into the store. And so many of when you get, you talk about the S curve and if that's, I don't have to go into what that is, but the early adopters, when you get past that and you're in the retail store, now you're moving to mass market and there's still a lot of people that have never heard of that brand and they are introduced for the very first time with that packaging. And so traditionally, and even in our research, it's super important. We don't let go of a strong brand is going to have emotive feelings, it's going to have the values and the mission and really that positioning of the brand itself. But most consumers on these types of especially challenger brands that I'm talking about, 
It's product first. And the brand story comes to life after. And traditionally, I think that the reverse would happen. And so that is, I think, a key difference in how we approach certain types of products coming on the market. Interesting. So I'm sure the process is different across all the unique different cases for the types of clients that are coming to you guys. But say a a challenger brand comes to you and is looking to gain market share in a category that seems to be cornered by a few big players. Can you walk us through where you would start as far as the strategy process goes to help this said challenger brand? Sure. We are going to focus on an immersion in that marketplace and, you know, the number of competitors on the shelf. And let's say we're trying to optimize some packaging with whether they have a deal or they're going to go into buyers of Kroger or a big grocery chain or something along those lines. So they want to be on the retail shelf in grocery. And I think of peanut butter, which has very few competitors. And you look at the breads and things like this, where there's a lot more choices. And so these are things that we weigh. But ultimately, the brands are there. There's some very well-established brands. And the smarter ones are doing refreshes and things like this because the market changes and consumers change. And they're not always keeping up. So what worked in the past doesn't work. So the first thing we're doing, of course, is, again, going back to what I said, of always being in Inside the customer's head as they walk down that aisle and trying to understand how their life experiences and all these things are overlaid on top of the interpretation of what they're seeing on that shelf. So we kind of just have to really, from a strategy perspective, we have to map that out. And that's so critically important. And we're looking for the opportunity. And of course, sometimes you've got something that's just so old, the product category is so old that you can reinvent it. And a good example comes to mind, a project that we worked on a few years ago that fits really with this Challenger brand. And it's actually something in our portfolio that on our website, Sanaya, and they make applesauce for adults. And as we went into that research project and really understanding probably some things that made sense, but really kind of quantifying and talking to consumers and looking out there. And and this product category is so old that our brains are turned off from even kind of being open to it being different from what we already know. So we have to think of a way to interrupt the kind of the way that consumers are thinking about it. And meaning that applesauce is historically known for children or elderly people that are having a hard time chewing and things like this. And it just kind of doesn't really fit with how we think about a snack. But when you overlay that with, again, and this is part of the research and understanding how the market has changed, snacking is people are on the go even more. We've got dual working families. And Greek yogurt is a good example of how they reinvented the yogurt category. But thinking about that and taking cues from Greek yogurt, how can that be applied? And understanding how can applesauce be thought of as an adult snack and not just passed right over. And so what's critically important was to communicate that this was not for children. It was different. And so we did that visually. We did that through flavoring also, which we had to bring the flavors they were using to life, things that were not usually would be seen in a child's typical applesauce, like tamarind root, jamaica flowers, and things like this that really say, hey, as you walk through that shelf, it catches your eye visually you want to quickly interrupt what they're thinking so that you can say, hey, I am something that's different. And so the strategy for that particular project was really revolved around interrupting patterns that consumers would think because this category is so old. And so this was a case of redefining that product category. And a different project might come about that in a very different way, maybe interrupting patterns of visuals, of colors and things like this. So that's where it all comes from. There's the trends of the marketplace, the consumers, how they've shifted and how it fits into their life better. And then going out there and looking at the products that are on the shelf today and where are they missing the mark? Where's the opportunity? Where can the client 
where are they able to deliver on a need that is identified through that whole process? That's where the strategy is rooted in. So how do you accurately gather the customer's perspective or their experience of walking down a given aisle and the factors that influence on a purchasing decision? Well, the traditional marketing research is really at play here. You go as far as you can on secondary research. What does it look like in that marketplace? We do a lot of store audits. We talk to kind of informally at this high level, talking to people, getting a feel and a sense, uh, deep dive audits. I love Amazon reviews, Q&A on there. You really start to dig into a product category and start to paint a picture of there. And then at the high level too, of understanding these kind of mega trends, consumer mega trends, like we talked about, shift from Gen X to millennials being the big buyers and how is their life different? How do they go about it? How do they think about spending all these kinds of things? So you overlay what you find there. And sometimes you come up with some pretty strong hypothesis on things that can work. And sometimes you identify where you have some gaps and you'd like some more information. And so from there, we're going to drive into direct consumer study where we're going to go and talk to targeted consumers and find people that fit into the category and the kind of the segment of where that audience is going to be. And in the former, as I said, we might validate some ideas. We might have multiple ideas if they work. And so we were going to go in and kind of maybe simulate some buying experiences. These are very familiar situations to most consumers, especially at food products, we go to grocery stores. So it's not hard to find really good insight into a consumer perspective, but the art and the craft is really doing it properly, asking those right questions and then in the right order too, really. But how do you validate, as I said, some of these hypotheses and then fill those gaps? And so we come out of that too. And maybe that, you know, a product can do 10 things and we know in packaging and everything I already said about how we're limited, it's the front door, we're going to weigh. If there's 10 things, how do consumers weigh the value to them and mapping those to what they work? So that's all done through a direct consumer study. And putting all those pieces together can really define from a brand strategy, what do you stand for and look at? And then of course, the product strategy and drive down into messaging that is likely to be very effective. Research is really one of those terms that's thrown around interchangeably throughout the industry. And in the context of branding and packaging design, how do you define market research and what really is the ideal outcome of that process? I think this is similar to what we've been talking about. And as you do a traditional branding project and the market research involved there, where as I've talked about, the brand is, I think of a lifestyle brand, clothing just comes to mind or sunglasses. And when you think about how the consumer is going to buy that product and how it fits into their life. And there it's about status and it's about this. And so I think the most critical thing is understanding how the product fits into their life. And then the next step is what does that buyer journey look like? And on consumer products, it tends to be quite short and simple, but no less important to really understand because there are a lot of differences. And so maybe that's the first critical thing is like, where am I going to... What's the foot in the door? What's my first impression? Whether it's the packaging or a website and things. And so you can't rely on the activation of the brand through these more traditional things and ads and things that... Sure, it still works and it happens, but we have an approach and a kind of a philosophy really of doing this work up front, this upfront work for building the brand and understanding how it's going to be presented because it's a first impression approach. And that first impression is, you know, if you translate this to later, you've launched your brand, your market, and let's say you're growing through ad spend and direct acquisition, how much more effective is that spend going to be if it's resonating right? And so 
all of the research is driven towards a strategy that is going to bring the best product forward, really trying to focus on differentiation. And differentiation, is particularly in food products and things like this, can sometimes be very hard to come by. And what our clients might think is a differentiator is actually just table stakes, where that's actually what everybody has. And if you don't have that, you're not even going to be part of the consideration set. And so a lot of tough work and is really trying to draw out that differentiation. And it can come in a number of different ways. But all that upfront work is an investment. I like to think of it as an investment with a high ROI because all the efforts later, which are very difficult, you know, getting consumers to take action and buy your product is just in a very, very crowded market space is so difficult. And it amplifies all of those effects later on. And with a consumer product, you basically can't change it later. I mean, of course you can, but you're in the store, you're on the shelf. It is a huge endeavor to change that. So you've got to get it right the first time. So when it comes to vetting and testing the response to whether it's a hypothesis or an updated packaging redesign, are the results typically more quantitative or do you find yourself needing to extract insights from qualitative results? I think what we're touching on now is we're starting to touch on what makes Smashman different. Everything that we've talked about from the research side of it Smashman certainly has our own philosophy and perspective on it that makes it uniquely different. But most good agencies are going to do that upfront work. It's important, that strategy. And the piece now, that is what drives good design. That's what drives good strategy. And the piece that we do at the tail end here is more on our testing side. So we're going to take these ideas which are vetted, they're strongly rooted in research and we believe can be very successful. And that may manifest itself in several variations of design and messaging. And so we can take those into testing. And what that looks like really is you tell us or we help guide our clients on maybe two competitors that you're likely to be on the shelf up against. And all things considered, we typically are going to insert ourselves into this kind of simulated buying experience where consumers, again, like I said, are very familiar with these types of buying situations. It's grocery or drug or something in retail that they're very familiar with. And we just kind of, maybe the situation might be presuming that they've narrowed their choices down to these options. And what we're identifying here are, as I talked about, you know, some category drivers. These are things that matter to all the products in there. And there's consumers segment themselves into there. You know, if you've got a bread and I want organic, I have excluding the non-organic products. So these category drivers, we're look, we're measuring those. How good are we doing on where you want to land in the competitive marketplace? And then your brand drivers, what makes you unique and different? And putting those in there and all things equal with the competitors, we just kind of swap out these different design concepts or maybe messaging concepts and we can get some quantitative numbers that we can compare. So our goal isn't particularly trying to predict market success because it is super complicated. There's so many factors involved. But what we can do very reliably is on a relative basis, say, if you put this product in the market, it is going to outperform. If you put this design in the market, you're going to outperform this design by such and such percent. And then switching, maybe it's not just design, but messaging and what messaging is going to resonate better, grab attention. And so there's all these pieces on the packaging that work together. Their job is to grab attention, elicit trust, and ultimately lead to purchase intent. So measuring these things through all these different factors and making changes allow us kind of at the end to validate that one, that our strategies are going to be effective and to what degree. Because at the tail end of most projects like this, no matter how good your strategy is, no matter how good your design is, the decision-making at the tail end is vastly run by subjectivity. There is 
different stakeholders, that everybody has their own opinion. And we just believe that what opinion is better than the consumer? So we push a lot of that towards the consumer. And of course, layering that into our own opinions and things like this and to make decision-making. So ultimately, the research, that testing brings a better product to the market that performs better and really helps lead and guide some of the decision-making on the tail end of the project. There's a, a really great quote from one of our previous guests of, if you ask a group of 10 people to agree on a, an ice cream flavor that they're going to get, then the response will be chocolate or vanilla every time, where consensus in a bigger group waters down the end result. So when you've got these findings, how do you ensure that something that might be contrary to the group or client opinion is not diluted or ignored when the data is showing a certain thing? I think you touched on something that Steve Jobs is famous for, saying that the consumer doesn't know what they want. And that works quite well in a very innovative company. And you're right, if you're presented with a choice of vanilla and chocolate, people will relate to what they know. And so getting to the answer of your question really is about how a test is structured. And if you think about that buying experience, and I've got products on the shelf, and I'm trying to make a choice as a consumer, I've got nothing except for what's in my head and what I know about these products, this product category, my own experiences, and three products in front of me. So simply by looking at those, I'm going to process in our own uniquely different way everything that I see and hear and touch. Well, they're not touching, but everything that I see and hear from that packaging, what it's communicating to me to make a decision. And what all those variables are, I think are probably different for different people. But like you said, if you ask 10 people, but instead we ask 300 people and you start to get that performance difference. And sometimes it can be difficult to understand the why. We try, we pull out the why, we use that to feed into our iterative design process and what can we learn about these different packaging? What's it communicating through these kind of open-ended questions? But from the quantitative perspective, we're so focused on what's drawing me in for whatever reasons that are unique reasons for that consumer, but on a mass, like how these consumers are targeted, what is working better on one design than the other? and using that to make decisions. And then as we talked about too, starting to drive into the drivers, which as I look at these products and a third of our responses are looking at the same two competitors and one design, say which of these three products, two of which are competitors, feels more like a healthy product. And then a whole nother hundred customers or respondents are looking at the same thing, but a different design and which of these products, it feels more healthy. And so we can quantitatively get a sense of how our design is communicating health just by comparing how they score with enough people. And so that's what's driving it. And to the extent that there's a trade-off, then we're trying to optimize towards getting closer to there. But going back to your point too, if you just stick designs on there and say, which one do you like better? It is driven so much more by things that don't align to purchase drivers. Preference for design and aesthetics don't always translate to purchase drivers. And so the testing is geared around the end result, which the end result is, of course, you want the consumer to put that in their shopping cart and go pay for it. So we drive there and then drill deeper into the drivers that actually are behind that. So to that point of purchase drivers and drawing from the, some examples that you have on the Smash Brand website with uh, the Yucatan guac, you've got the example of how consumer insights and research showed that consumers really wanted a longer-lasting guac. and from there, just one example, but how do you connect the dots that fresh ingredients are the visual that really scratches that subconscious itch of the consumer? 
that's a very interesting one that you pulled out specifically for that element of the packaging because we tested that three times. And kind of backing up to your original question, I think the big takeaway from testing on this was you see a lot of packaging innovation, you know, the technologies are changing. And so the actual, I'm talking about the substrate, what is going into matters. And so squeeze is traditionally, I think, almost logically associated with uh, convenience, right? So I don't need a spoon, I don't have more dishes and just squeeze it on there. But the piece that was missing when we actually first designed this and kind of from the client's feedback was that messaging on the top stays green up to 14 days longer. So the key innovation there was actually not convenience. It was that you've got guacamole that no longer gets brown within 12 hours after you open it because the air never touches it. So there was a huge kind of revamp to on the messaging to that. So as a key kind of messaging component, I think there's a lot of secondary research on this and consumers like to see what they're buying, even with a clear pouch on that and seeing the guacamole. But the differentiator that was tied and keyed into the color was the flavor. And so bringing life to that to further understand it, and, and there's again saying that uh, there is a lot of secondary research on that, about how visuals of the ingredients, you know, seeing your food is what consumers prefer. And if you ask them directly, and we did, they prefer it. But yet here we are, and this kind of touches in with what we just talked about, the performance data was not as good. So if you stop there on a test and say, hey, I think actually it performs better without the ingredients. And But we have a disconnect here because broader research has shown that consumers prefer to see these types of things. And so working with the client too, they were willing to keep exploring to try and make it work. And so in our testing, we focused a lot on busyness and crowdedness of the designs we're presenting in front of them. And we found that when we put the ingredients on there, the design felt really busy. And so I think that from a consumer perspective, it becomes noise and crowded and it's losing its effects that we think should work. And so a lot of the work on the design was not about messaging, saying something different, using different colors. It was completely about spatial and creating space to bring the attention towards those ingredients. And sure enough, we found this recipe that actually started to perform better than without the ingredients. And so that is how the testing actually got those ingredients on the packaging and how it went to market like that through that consumer feedback. Interesting. I can't imagine how many different tests or how many other agencies wouldn't even think to consider the spacing as a variable to test. I can definitively say it matters. It's why we have this notion that the whole packaging itself is a recipe of success, a recipe of communication. There's so many pieces on there. You know, we can change color, we can change weights of elements, and they all work together to communicate it. And when you change one thing, it tends to probably push other things to a different weight. And so the recipe changes every time. And so testing allows us to it's really the only medium we have to weigh everything together. So you might have this crazy design, this great, it's awesome, and you say, hey, let's take this off. But what you don't know is how taking one element off affects the entire impression of the packaging working together. And so testing is a really great way for us to get that insight and understand how it all works together. So I think I'm tracking, nodding my head along, but just want to make sure. So when you say secondary research, is that referring to research done outside of Smash Brand? That's right. That's stuff that we can find, whether they're from industry reports or scouring Google, as I was talking about, Amazon reviews, Q&A. That's the information that is out there. It's available to anyone that if they take the time and really work at getting it and then can put the pieces together, that's the secondary research. The primary research 
is uh, talking to consumers directly. Okay, that might be a dumb question for most people, but I just wanted to make sure I was following accurately. So to the point of Amazon, curious, in your experience, how has the growth of e-commerce really influenced branding and packaging design? I I noticed on the website, you have the launch of a successful Amazon brand from scratch. So all things equal, does e-commerce first brand end up looking different from one with a retail first sales strategy? I would say the only difference is that the packaging has less work it needs to do because if you look at an Amazon listing, one, your first picture, and Amazon wants it, that primary picture is your primary display panel. That's the front of your packaging. That's what we do a lot of testing. So it actually is the first thing that consumers see on Amazon and in the store. But on Amazon, you can build, if you've got some gaps, let's say you're missing some stuff and you're never going to communicate everything you need to on the front of package, Amazon has a lot more wiggle room, so to speak, to build that story. But at the same time, consumers are still, that's that first impression coming in. And I would say on Amazon, it's a combination of the image and the title and even them pulling in some of those keywords and bullet points. So you're reinforcing that. But if you've done a really good job on your packaging and you really understand what matters, it's very likely that there's going to be a lot of repetition there. And so I would say that it's no less important. And there is to where it makes sense and how far Amazon can take you and moving from Amazon, which is standard probably trajectory, like, okay, I need to diversify off of Amazon. And now I'm in Walmart and maybe I've got my own direct to consumer selling through Shopify. And then the big holy dream is you want that distribution and go into retail. And so at that stage, I would say if you've done everything successfully, your packaging is already ready to go. So I think that there's no contradiction here. It's that the right way is to build for retail, to understand that that packaging on the front door is semi-static. You can't really change it very easily. And so do your best because not only what you put there, it's what you decided to not put there, that to do it right, you've really understood what matters to consumers and you've created a hierarchy of messaging, a hierarchy of what is important from your brand and how consumers perceive it. And that is actually going to work its way into how you do your entire, let's say if we're talking about Amazon, that whole Amazon listing. And ultimately, it may seem nuanced, but that matters so tremendously. I think to be successful on Amazon, there's a lot of very expensive ad spend and a 2% difference in your conversion rate on Amazon can come from these types of things, if not more. So going back to what I was saying, the packaging is so critically important because to do it right, you have to fully... There's so much you have to understand before to just put the constrained amount of information and visuals on that packaging. And that whole process in itself will build a better product and a better brand. So very interesting interview thus far, really digging into the strategy and consumer insights that goes into the brand strategy, packaging design. Curious, what advice would you give a challenger brand who's considering embarking on a packaging redesign project? So when you say redesign, I just want to answer the right question. They already have a product in the market and they feel like they need to refresh it or a brand new product launch. Are we... And maybe they can't be all that different. Let's say they have a product in the market and feel like it needs a refresh to really stand out. Okay, as a challenger brand, I would almost guess that they probably had this great idea and they kind of put something together. We're typically not on a small budget when we put it out there. And being in market also is great because everything that I said about that secondary research, you have that for your competitors. It's critically important that you do all of that work in that market space and think through that buying experience and what goes inside that customer's head. But you have an extra piece and that piece is what specifically do your customers say about your brand and say about your product and trying to just further add to that. 
Another thing to try and keep this more broad and usable to a lot of people, I think that there is... I mean, there's so many products. It's so easy to bring a product on market today. So there's a lot of competition. And particularly to Amazon, if you've got a new product, you're probably going there unless it's really low dollar and it just doesn't make sense financially. But there's a lot of sameness out there. I think that the differentiation is difficult. And we've different... Even a product that we own, one of the products in our portfolio is we own the brand new. And it's a set of oils that are used now a lot for keto dieting, MCT oil. And it's a single ingredient in the bottle. And as we think about that brand perspective, we did a lot of work on the brand and understanding who our customer was, finding gaps in the marketplace. I'm not going to go into the details of that project. You can kind of read about it on our website. But the piece that I want to focus on is that how do you be different? Yes, we have high quality oil. Yes, but so do other brands. So Going back to the category drivers, I told you there's cheap MCT oils and there's really high premium quality MCT oils, but we are not the only one. So we need more differentiation. And of course, the brand can be part of that and what you stand for and the story and these things resonate. But look beyond the product. Look beyond how is that product used? It's not like a granola bar where I tear off the wrapper and throw it in the trash. MCT oil and like olive oils and some products are actually used over time. And so what we found too was again, reading and understanding how consumers were using other products, that the really poor quality bottles were being used and they didn't even have a pore spout like you would see on olive oils. And so trying to create some subtle but differentiation through the actual delivery of the product and being the first brand to really source a bottle and create a pore spout in a plastic bottle, which was harder to find because so much of that olive oil is in glass, but with that pore spout to basically change the experience of using the product so that the longevity of the customer satisfaction things and then bringing that to the forefront and kind of bringing out something that maybe we don't talk about it, but if you bring it up, I'm like, oh yeah, and you use MCT oil before on these other bottles, you're like, I can relate to that because I buy these other brands and you know it's running down the side of the bottle and creating a ring on my counter and it's this oily mess. So you solve this problem. So the innovation can happen in really unique ways. And so I would push brands that want to launch to find it. And if your product feels just like everyone else, keep pushing until you can figure out a way to make it different. So kind of going off of that answer, you mentioned these category drivers, which in hindsight, or when somebody calls them out, they're clear as day. It seems like that was an obvious thing that was there the whole time. But in reality, I'm sure it's probably much murkier, a lot more gray area to find these hidden drivers. So where in the process do you tend to discover these drivers in a category? I guess that's where our creativity and innovation comes from. I'm just going to give you a really fast other example that you just kind of create one out of thin air. Many, many years ago, we did a project on a product that was sold in Whole Foods, and it was a quinoa pasta. And what was unique and different about there is it was mostly just quinoa and all the competitors are mix it with corn. And our client was complaining to us. She's like, I have, I challenge because my cost of goods, my product is more expensive, but nobody cares that the other products have corn in it because what they're really looking for is a gluten-free and a non-wheat product. So what we did was we said no corn fillers. And we tested this and it actually resonated well. And what we did was we planted a seed of doubt in the consumer's mind. So no one's talking about corn. In fact, and consumers today a lot more commonly are going to look at the ingredients. But even if you've seen corn, are you going to think anything bad of that? The high quality products might even say non-GMO corn. And you still think that that's no problem. But by calling it a filler, which we naturally will think of as a negative connotation, a negative word, you create doubt. And the consumer says, hey, no corn fillers. What does that mean? 
the other product doesn't say no corn filler, does that mean that this is a bad thing? And we've seen other examples of this in different categories where you basically, what you've done is you've created a category driver. And it starts as a brand driver. And then if it's successful, then your competitor's copy unit later becomes a category driver. But thinking of it like that, where you can create more separation between a product and consumers have varying levels of understanding of certain things. And if their understanding is low, but you're actually still right, you can do something like that to create doubt. And it creates that differentiation in a very unique way. Awesome. That's very interesting. Well, great interview thus far. We have a wrap-up segment that we do for all of our guests. And start off, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice as you were just starting Smash Brand, what would that be? It's so easy to look back and say, oh, I do things differently. But I'm a believer of where you are today is exactly because of everything behind you. And certainly our firm looked very different 10 years ago and even three or five years ago. So I would say I don't regret any of it. I think that we're exactly where we need to be. And we got here because of our unique backgrounds and a lot of trial and error of figuring out how to make this whole process work. I think we've developed something that I passionately believe is the right way to do packaging design today. And we kind of had to do it from scratch. And I don't think we could have done it any other way than kind of 10 years of refining this process. So I don't hold regrets. I think uh, we're exactly where we need to be. And I'm happy with it. Awesome. So where can listeners go to learn more about Smash Brand and and what you guys are up to? Smashbrand.com. Some of the projects that I referenced to in this interview, you can read a little more in a case study on our prior work page there on Smash Brand. Me specifically, Michael Smashbrand, if you want to reach out or I'm on LinkedIn, Michael Keplinger, pretty easy to find with that last name. Awesome. Michael, thanks so much for your time, your expertise. It was great getting to learn more about you and what Smash Brand is up to. Thank you, Alex. It's been great being on here. And that's our show, folks. If you're still listening, either you got some value out of this episode or you got sidetracked and just haven't hit the next button yet. If it's the first one, it would be a massive, huge favor if you could leave us a review on whatever app that you're listening to right now. It helps us get our name out there, which in turn helps us bring more great guests on the show. What I'm really saying is help us to help you. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll be back same time, same day next week. Stay nerdy. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources, head to foodmarketingnerds.com.